Kathleen Chada thought her husband was just taking the kids out for a night of bowling on the 10th of July 2013. Instead, 10-year-old Owen and 5-year-old Rory never came home. Their evil father, Sanjeev Chada, strangled them to death in his car before making a failed attempt to take his own life. The horror Kathleen went through sent shockwaves and made headlines around Ireland, and it will for many years to come. Today though, Kathleen has become an incredible beacon of hope for many victims, and an advocate for a better justice system. She sat down with this podcast to talk about that. She also spoke about the horrific loss of her two sons, and her fears that their killer father may someday be released. This is Shattered Lives, and I'm Paul Healy. Kathleen, thank you for speaking to us. Um, I know you've done multiple interviews now at this point, and, and I can't imagine it's easy to bring it all up again and again. But if you don't mind, I'm just going to briefly go back to that day, July 2013, and I suppose if you want to talk us through, just it was a normal day like any other day. It was, I suppose... I'd probably go back about 10 days prior to that, yeah. which is when I I'd found out that my, my ex-husband had embezzled money from our local community. Mm-hmm. So things were tense um, yeah. over that time. Um, but the the week before he took the boys, I would have actually said there was a, a sort of a calmness about him. Um, and I thought it was because it was out in the open. Um, and when you say things were tense, like I mean... Was it argumentative or was it no, just... Was, no, it was, it was just, just because, you know, he... It was a shock. And, it was a shock. Yeah. And um, suddenly I was seeing things in a very different light uh, as far as he was concerned. And, um, you know, you start thinking about things. Are we going to have to... I mean, one of the first things I did was looked from our own finances were, was there debt? Was there bigger debt? Was there things that I, you know, m- more, if you like, than, than just what he'd done with the local community? Um, he said no, but I I, I don't know. Mm. I, I really don't know. And even all this time later, I suppose I haven't gone looking to find out. I presume there was, mm. but I think it was amongst family and friends on his side. So it wasn't something that kind of came up or that I, I, I would have been aware of. You know, did we, what what was going to have to be done? Um, I suppose to pay back the debt. Um, this is my community. This is where I grew up. So I felt, you know, sort of, I suppose, responsible for it in yeah. a way. Um, and how was your relationship at that point in, in, in terms of your marriage and that? Like, what, what, was this a breaking point or was it something you were going to work through from uh, your perspective? I it's mean. funny. That's one of the questions he asked me right. <laughs> himself right. at the time. Um, and I remember actually saying, I didn't know right. that um, I wasn't kicking him out now. Mm. I wasn't asking him to leave. And that I really didn't know. Um, you know, it would be very easy to say, no, probably would have been all right or would have gotten through it. That would have depended very much on, on him, really, and, and how much responsibility he took for what he'd done and mm. how active he was in, in trying to fix that, that issue. Yeah, I, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's hard to, to, to introduce what happened next, but, yeah. but what happened next was unthinkable. Yeah. But uh, as I say, 10 days later... Yeah. Um, he brought the boys out bowling. Yeah, he was going, but, and it wouldn't have been unusual for him to do something like that with the boys. Mm. What I suppose in those, in that week, in that weekend, he was probably trying to make up a little bit for what had gone on. Yeah. Um, so he, I remember that morning he brought me breakfast in bed with the boys, you know, and now, really? well, again, it was just a, one of those 
things. It wasn't an unusual thing for for the boys to do to bring them mm. bring us up a cup of tea. They kind of um, the kids do that with, mm. with parents. So uh, that had happened. He'd cooked dinner mm. um, that day, so they'd eaten before they went out. He told me to you know that I could sort of catch up with a friend if I wanted to. I was going to go for a walk. Mm. Um, that he'd take the boys bowling, and there was nothing in it that would have made me second guess that. I remember my friend had come around and we were going out for the walk. The boys had gone up to my brother who's just lives up the road from me um, to bring something up. I can't even remember what it was now. But they had gone up there together and Sandra said, that was fine, you go on up and I'll collect you up at Kevin's. Mm. Um, I went for my walk, mm. came back in and I think it was about, I can't even remember the time exactly. It was somewhere around the nine o'clock mark. And mm. um, now bearing in mind, they didn't leave till about half six. So I wasn't, time-wise, I wasn't yeah. really they concerned. Weren't too, they weren't gone long. that long. Yeah. Um, and, but I was phoning Sand because I think we'd run out of milk or something. Right. And I remember phoning him, there was no reply. And I think I sent him a text maybe. Um, and then I must have phoned him again. And at that stage, I realized that his phone was upstairs. I heard it ringing upstairs. Yeah. Um, that was, again, unusual enough in that he would have always had his phone with him. But it was, he'd just gotten a new phone right. that was bigger. It was a smartphone. Uh, so bigger than his normal uh, or his previous phone. And so he couldn't fit it. And he, because it was a smartphone, he didn't keep it in his back pocket like he did his other phone. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so he would have carried it a lot more, if you like, in those yeah. couple of weeks yeah. um, beforehand or for as long as he'd had it. Um, he was being more careful with it, I suppose. So again, it was one of those things where you thought, oh, he might have just put it down and forgotten it. So it, there was no reason for me to be concerned at that yeah. stage. So I got to about 10 so o'clock looking then. Looking back at these things now, you're, you're, that's you're, it. you're thinking yeah. of the significance of them. But you know, there was at nothing. At the time, yeah. yeah. And I thought, you know, maybe they've gone, maybe they've gone to McDonald's. Maybe they, you know, yeah. there's all sorts of things that kind of, mm. you just assume. Um, I got to about 10, between 10 and 11, I did start to worry. Because mm. it just seemed odd. I went to look for the keys of the second car. Then I phoned my brother. That would have been about probably 11 o'clock. He came down and we drove into Carlo. And I remember Brian said to me, did I want to go to the guards? And I was like, why would I go to the guards? Should, no. I remember I had left his phone just in front of the front door with a big notice that said, ring me as soon as you get in. Uh, what was going through your head at this point? Did you think something bad had happened or just, you know? I, I, I don't know that I wanted anything to go through my head at that stage, to be honest. I didn't mm-hmm. want to think about anything cause, because you, you're going to jump to... You know, well, I, I I suppose I was probably worried about thinking about anything bad. Yeah. Um, I did, as at, at that stage, you do sort of think his, he's panicked somewhere or some, you know, you, you, you start to think the worst. Mm-hmm. But until I drove back up, so we got back about, it was a little after midnight, and as I was driving back up the road, I went, please let his car be there. Please let the car be there. Please let the car be there. And it wasn't. And that's when I started. Mm-hmm. That's when I allowed myself to start to think the worst, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's still, were you thinking accident or... Accident you know? or... Not an accident, actually. But I, I remember all that night, because I remember actually um, one of, the, one of the, the, the guards actually said it to me afterwards. 
I spent the whole night going, he's got the boys with him. He'll be all right. Mm. If he'd gone off on his own, I would have thought he's gone. He might be gone to do something yeah. to himself. Yeah. But I kept going, he's got the boys with him. He'll be all right. And, and unfortunately, mm. I'm right about that because mm. he was all right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the boys weren't, but mm. he was. So um, he, I suppose the, I, when we got back to the house, it's at that point I called the guards. Um, and you start thinking, okay, where could he be? And, it, it, you know, I phoned, so my two brothers came down. I phoned his brother who lives up in the north and um, bless him, he came straight down. He wasn't up there because I thought maybe that's where he'd gone. You know, he's only up the other side of Newry. And uh, I thought maybe that's where he'd be. No, he wasn't. But Cash came down. Um, because I remember saying to him, um, well, you, you, you better come down because when he gets back, he's not staying here and he's mm-hmm. going to need somebody on his side mm-hmm. because I suppose, you know. You're pretty annoyed at that point. Of pretty. Yeah. That, that's putting it mildly. Yeah. I was like, this this you know you don't do this yeah. you just don't do this then I thought well maybe he's gone to the UK you know he's gone over on the ferry um because I would have we we had been over only a month earlier um uh, over we'd gone over to the UK on the ferry and his his mum lives in in just outside London and um again I thought okay he'd left at 6 30 there thereabouts down to Rosslare by 7 30 there was a ferry at nine mm-hmm. Maybe that's where he's gone. Mm. So I waited and waited until um, about, I think it was about seven o'clock in the morning because I went, okay, ferry's about the nine o'clock, get in to the UK at about one or two in the morning, mm. four hour drive down to London. Mm. You know, the, I kind of put all the timing of that together uh, in my head and I thought, well, he'll, you know, he'll, he'll be waiting outside his mum's house. Mm. Um, so I phoned them the first thing about, I think it was about half six, seven. And again, I remember because his sister um, happened to be home for the weekend. And I phoned uh, when I phoned them and she went outside to see was the car parked somewhere outside. And I remember being on the phone going, please, please let him just be there. Please mm. let him be there. What I hadn't realised at that stage was actually the guards had been in touch with um, the Metropolitan Police mm. Service um, and they were actually, I think, had gone to the house as well to see uh, uh, see right. if he might be there. So, um, was there, at this point, there was a nationwide alert, was there? Or was that... There wasn't an alert at that stage. Right. The guards had been informed, as say, it was somewhere about 12, 12.30. Right. Um, they, in fairness, took it seriously from the very beginning. There was no, you know, oh, well, maybe or, you know, maybe hang on a couple of hours. It was right from the beginning, possibly because of the embezzlement. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was that sense of, of you know, and, and again, I subsequently found out that, you know, they would have been much more worried about what he might be going to do than, than I was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at, at that stage, I mean, we're talking eight years ago. There were cases there. There's been a, a lot more cases since then, in similar yeah. where children have been in hurt and, and uh, that in similar circumstances. But at the time, there it wasn't, and it wasn't on my radar. Yeah. So, um, so they were here. They had come round to the house. The local guys from from Bagnallstown had come out. They'd taken photographs, things like that, um, and they put out an alert. The Cry Alert um, Child Rescue Ireland, 
that alert didn't go out until after lunch. Um, and the boys were actually the first cry alert in Ireland. It had only just um, really started. Um, and there have been, I think, about 11 or 12 since. And mm. thankfully, on every case, the, the children have been, been found mm. um, unharmed, physically anyway. Mm. So I remember, you know, again, during that night, in the early hours of the morning, you know, just you. This, what do you do? You're sitting here. I made copious cups of coffee and tea for anybody that was coming and going. Mm-hmm. And uh, then once morning came round, it was when you start to to do things. And and my brother brought me into the bank to see was there activity on the account, uh, because it was you know on his account. We'll say because I couldn't I didn't have access to to right. it online, and uh, there was nothing. I remember we we were coming out of the bank and. There was a, a helicopter going on, going overhead. Again, I didn't realise it at the time, but they were out um, going along the barrow oh. to see if there was any sign of the car or might have entered the, the water. Mm-hmm. So there was an awful lot of stuff going on that was, I had no, weren't aware of, weren't aware of mm-hmm. wasn't aware of at all, no clue about it. But I suppose what it, it, it highlighted the seriousness mm-hmm. of, of the situation and how it was taken so seriously. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of all coming and going here. Uh, my parents were informed, the rest of the family were informed, the extended family, his family. And, and you're just going through through things. And, and I remember um, a detective came in and he wanted to do an interview with me, so it was mm. fine. Um, we went into the sunroom, um, so we went in there and uh, started the interview. And I remember... Um, kind of going okay well you know this morning we did or yesterday morning we started he's like no no Kathleen and uh, he says so you were born in Ballinkillen and I'm like oh, oh that's wow. really is going yeah <laughs> this is this is okay mm. so um so we started that and how I'd met Sanjay and, and literally from the beginning and sort of were going through mm-hmm. and this the cry alert would have gone out at this sta- stage and it was somewhere around the 3 three thirty mark mm. and my phone rang and it was a, an unknown number um, and it was but I was kind of getting used to that at the, you know there's various people calling me and numbers mm-hmm. so I just answered the phone um, the detective was in front of me and it was Sanj on the phone and it, it's like all the um, all the detective shows that you watch on TV came came into your mind and you went okay now I know I have to keep him talking here yeah, and yeah, keep yeah. calm not antagonise him and, and all of this sort of stuff because I thought well he's really mean to, to tell me you know where he is and he'll be on the way home and uh, mm. I'm looking at the detective as I'm talking and it's obvious that it's Sanj on the phone because mm. even people in you know in the other room knew and, and it was almost like there was a stillness suddenly what you know what's going to happen and mm. uh, they're all looking at you all yeah right um and he um I was like where, where are you he said I've, I've crashed the car uh, okay and again I'm, I'm, there's only bits of that conversation I remember apart from um when I asked him were the boys okay uh, he said, no, they're dead in the back. Um, and they're the words he, he used. And and I just lost it at that stage. Um, the detective took the phone. I just completely, uh, 
meltdown of you know of sorts and and, and I remember and those were his, his words his words the, they're his dead words, in the back they're dead in the back and I remember coming out into the sitting room and sitting on the couch and going they can't be he's okay mm. he's alright he's able to phone me mm. they're probably they might be you know stunned or they might have if there was a crash they might be hurt they're conscious or whatever but they, they if he's okay they can't be dead and um he um i sat i sat there going you know he, they, they can't possibly be they could they, no they couldn't be they couldn't be and it's the first time that even the thought of them not coming home had entered my head i hadn't up until that point i it it just didn't it didn't enter my head that that he would even hurt them the the worst in my thought, the worst thought, you know, yeah, the worst thought in my head was that he would have brought them to England and that I was going to be having to face some sort of a battle to try and bring them back here. And that was as bad as it was going to be in, in my head. So I remember the detective coming out of the sunroom into the sitting room and, and saying, Kathleen, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting on a call back or words to that effect. And I remember... And I have no idea how long the time was, but I remember he he God love him held everything in in his hands in his words because I needed him to tell me the boys were okay, and he couldn't, and he I mean he was waiting for confirmation I now know, but I I remember all like I just almost staring intently at him waiting for him to say they're all right we just need to get you to such and such a place to hospital to wherever they are and um and i remember he walked he walked outside and he walked back into the house and he just said i'm so sorry Mm. and that was enough he didn't have to say any more than that i knew Mm. everybody knew uh, and I just lost it. Um, I know um, somebody had come, I think it was, I think it was Father Declan, our, our parish priest had come into the house around that time. And uh, he said it was, it was like, it was like an earthquake. And, and it was because I just, it was like falling into a dark, dark hole. Mm. And, and going, no, no. Just no, just no. Um, and I don't know again how long passed and you came back. Um, and I did come back. I remember seeing one of my aunts and just focusing on her because I needed to focus. I needed to see something, something that I could recognise almost. Because um, you just, you know, I've never, ever gone through anything remotely close to that mm. so I remember focusing on her and going okay just just get myself back just get back and um, and then it was almost like it's almost like a shift actually in in because your mind just you're in such shock and your mind goes into um, survival mm. actually it is it's survival mm. and you come back and it's like okay right logically and, and just in, in some other realm I know that this is happening 
but I just need to get through the next 5, 10, 15 minutes, hour. And, and so you come back into, right, okay, what now? What, what now? Um, and I know the guards, um, I'm not sure who at this stage, but, you know, they came and, and there was lots of talk and lots of discussion as to what's next and what's going to happen. And um, they wanted to, so this was Monday evening at this stage, and they wanted to get the boys identified as quickly as possible because they couldn't do anything else on, until then. At this stage, I think at this stage, I knew that they were over in Mayo. I have no idea why they ended up in Mayo. I think it was just, the only thing I can think of is that from Carlo, he went to Port Leash and just continued driving, to be honest. I, I don't think there was anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his intention was to take his own life by crashing that car. Yeah. He had apparently attempted earlier mm-hmm. as well. Um, so I, I, again, subsequently discovered um, where the boys were actually killed and, and, and he killed them somewhere around the five o'clock in the morning mark, I think, 4.35. Um, he apparently tried to strangle all three of them to begin with in the car. Even now, I can't quite work out the logistics of yeah. that and how... That would have even worked how he was able to do any to the, would have been able to do that and then my understanding is he tried to hang himself from a tree um and the branch broke you there going maybe God. It, it, it's all that there were multiple there was yeah there was there was he that you know but i would have said very pathetic attempts the reality is if you really want to kill yourself, you'll kill yourself. He had lots of time. He So if boys were killed around, you know, sort of the four or five o'clock mark, he didn't crash that car till about half two in the afternoon. Um, he stopped to get petrol. Uh, he got a coffee. We think, or I think, what happened was he heard the cry alert and panicked. And crashed the car at that stage. So what happened was he was in a side road. He, he The boys were killed very close to Ballantubber Abbey. He had then made his way back to Westport. And he was just on the outskirts of Westport on a side road. And he drove at speed down the side road. Crossed a, a, a T-junction into a, a wall. Mm. I can only be forever grateful for the fact that there was nobody else killed. Because anybody could have been walking, cycling, driving. It was a, a fairly busy road. And there could have been another family shattered. So do you think the the attempt it wasn't really an attempt, as you said? I, to be honest with you, I don't think he had the guts to do it. Mm-hmm. Which, given what he had just done, doesn't make any sense. No. But, you know... He, uh, yeah, I, I, it, <laughs> it seems incredulous almost that, that he didn't. I remember, um, you know, having conversations uh, with regards to suicide. You know, there, there is something worse than suicide in some cases. Very rarely, very, very rarely. But actually, there is worse than 
than that. And and he's an example of that. Because to have done what he did to Owen and Rory, to have been able to do that and to inflict the injuries that he did inflict on Owen in particular and and continue to live himself is, is beyond me. It is beyond me. I don't want to I don't know, it's difficult to, to talk about, but I mean given what had happened, I mean they must have been aware or what was going on. The I, children, I mean. have to yeah. assume that. Um yeah. he would say no and his um his evidence or his his statements mm. he said no. Mm. But the the injuries he inflicted on on Owen were quite catastrophic. Um uh, I mean, the obvious one to me was the fact that when we had them at home um, for the two nights before they were buried, um, I had to actually, they couldn't, they, they were sharing a bed and they couldn't sleep on their own side. They could, I couldn't put them in on their own side of, of where they slept normally because we, we had to disguise the, the, the huge... Um, uh, area on, on Owen's head where he'd had a lump of hair pulled out. Now my understanding is everything happened in the car. Again, I am thinking of the fight that Owen would have put up. Mm-hmm. So there was a huge, um, as I say, there was a, a bald patch on his head. Mm-hmm. You, 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 you can't do that easily. Unless there's some unless resistance. There's very resistance and I mean the the I just, yeah, the the anger and, and to to inflict something like that on on somebody you you supposedly love, uh, owns skull. Um, for want of a better way of putting it, was was almost like a jigsaw being put back together again by the um undertaker. This is really graphic, and and I'm sorry for any of the no, listeners no, hearing totally. it, but. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's real. He had damage to his shoulder, to his collarbone, to his hip. They were all fractured. Um, and so I, and you, you try, you, you, you do try to imagine how, how do those injuries get inflicted in, in a car, in the confines of a car. Mm. Zanj would say that Rory slept through that. Um, my understanding is that Owen was killed first and then he killed Rory and that Rory slipped, slept through everything that he was doing to Owen. There's no way. Mm. With the injuries that Owen had, there's no way. Mm. He was ultimately killed by um, strangulation, which basically means all of those injuries, that was the fight that Owen put up. Mm. I mean, he was fighting, and I believe he was fighting for his own life and he was fighting for his little brother. Mm. Um. I can only hope and pray that the head injuries that were inflicted on him had an effect and he didn't know what was going on. Um, Sanj, in his evidence, said that he took Rory onto his knee. Again, you try and picture this and put it put it together in sequence, but he put Togona, or Rory onto his knee um, to comfort him after he woke up and saw mm. Owen and um, and then he proceeded to to strangle Rory um, at that stage. So he's comforting him and yet and and you it just 
You try and put it together. You try and make some sense of it. And there's no sense. There is absolutely no sense to it. But what, you know, using the word murder in these circumstances, it's almost it's almost too soft to describe what was done to Owen and Rory. And, and they're the things, I suppose, that that's what I live with. That's so, you know, and I do talk about it and I talk about it very openly and, um, you know, but I'm also very conscious of, of where I'm talking about it and, and yeah. you know, I'm, I'm probably talking more openly to you now and, and more graphically mm-hmm. than than I would in, in most situations. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the kind of the nature of what we're, we're talking about here. So, it, it, but that's there and that's there. It's in my mind all the time. I can't, I just can't imagine like for you, obviously uh, uh, to have to hear all that for the first time mm-hmm. and from your husband, you know, to, to, uh, and as you say, you can't necessarily believe his version of events, but it's the only version of events you're ever going to have. That's it. That's it. Um, yeah, I just can't yeah. imagine that. I, I, I said in, in my victim impact statement, you know, he, he robbed me of of my last hours and moments with Owen and Rory. Mm. He had that. Despite the fact that he was the one that was inflicting this on them, he had those last moments. He could hold them while they were still warm. Um, now, he unceremoniously dumped them in the boot of the car and even that he did that because that's that's him protecting himself he knew he couldn't be seen with Owen and Rory in the back of the car mm. so he dumped them to all intents and purposes mm. so he, he got those by the time they came back to me you know obviously they, they were cold they were mm. so you you try and you you, you know and I'm, I'm so grateful for everybody that was involved in getting them home to me because there was a possibility that it was going to have to be a closed coffin if they didn't get home as quick quickly enough yeah. um and um and we can talk about that because that's part of the justice side of it but yeah. i i knew and i'm i'm a nurse by background so i'm quite practical and and i know what happens to to the bodies of, of deceased people and, and, and I knew, you know, what was needed um to, to get Owen and Rory back. And you know, there was a there was on that Wednesday there was a if if we didn't get the boys back soon, there the, the plans were being put put in place for me to travel over to Mayo mm. to stand behind at last window and say goodbye to Owen and Rory so I am I am so grateful that that wasn't the case that I did get them home but you know it's still they were cold they were cold um and it didn't matter what I covered them with I wasn't going to be able to warm them if you mind me asking you um just when it got to the stage where it gets to court and uh-huh. um you know when he admitted everything and, and 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 all of that you know getting justice part where he was imprisoned um was there any relief any kind of feeling of okay well that's closing the book or was it you know? the the relief was in the fact that he did plead guilty mm. 
my fear was that he would put in some sort of an insanity or mental health defense mm-hmm. and 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 I remember being counseled about the possibility of him him putting in an insanity plea mm-hmm. and almost well you know of course he was insane <laughs> even I would have said well you know you kind of have to be insane to do what he did yeah. and yet I knew he wasn't so that was the relief I was incredibly lucky and I had a really good guard liaison officer um, from Carlo um, now all the investigation was happening over in the west because that's where uh, everything had happened but, but Declan was really good at keeping me as up-to-date as was possible. Yeah. And I'm very conscious that, I mean, I go back to, to trying to get the boys back home. That was because Sanj had the right, even though he, he so he was in hospital, he, some minor injuries, he was in hospital. They couldn't arrest him until he was discharged. Yeah. But he would then have the right to have an independent autopsy done if he wanted himself. So the state had done theirs, but he would have had the right. And that's what might have stopped me heading, getting my boys home. Now, I know that there was a, a, you know, there was a strong campaign going on in the background mm. to to kind of waive that right. Mm. And he eventually did mm. in time for me to get the boys home. But right then I realized the justice system is stacked in favor of a perpetrator. That was my first real realization that... That early on. Like, that early on, mm. that me my family my community mm. were were fighting if you like mm. to w- have him waive that right now you know this the logical part of me goes he's in hospital he doesn't realize and he's in shock he's all of that sort of thing so fair enough but that's the that's where i talk with the justice system this wasn't a a sand issue this was the justice system and, and what support were you getting at this stage from 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 anybody well family friends mm-hmm. community um in fairness i the, mean now the, the the state like in terms of like any kind of no, at that know. stage no the guards yeah. absolutely the guards yeah. were there um very much so i know that locally mm-hmm. um the the uh, neps the the educational um psychologist mm-hmm. um that support the department of, um, of, of education mm-hmm. and and the, so they were out to to help the teachers and students and and that within the community but from a state perspective i do remember um, i remember being angry about it you know he went into the central mental hospital for his own safety mm-hmm. now in fairness i do think it was a case of well what are we going to do with this guy because mm-hmm. you know his actions were almost those of somebody who was insane so the what what's going on or what was was happening? So, um, what else could they do with him? But he was brought there, and I know that he will have been on fifteen minute observations to begin with, hourly observations. He would have been probably special where he'd have had somebody with him at all times to keep him safe, to make sure he didn't do anything to himself. The only people that were here keeping me safe were those that were going through the same loss and pain and grief that I was. And I know that it was a worry and a concern for my friends and family that I would do something, mm. that I would um, take my own life. That wasn't ever a concern of mine, to be honest. No. It's funny. Um, I uh, I don't think it was ever anything on the, you know, there are many, many times where I wish I wasn't in this world, but I don't 
ever believe that I'm suicidal, you know. So it, and there is a difference, and there, and there were times where, you know, there's a struggle and you feel like you know you just want to go. And I want to be with the boys, mm. absolutely. What I will say is, there's no fear. Death doesn't have any. There's no fear of death in me now because as far as I'm concerned I'm joining the boys when that time comes but mm. um, but I won't anticipate that mm. um, but that's the support so it's what has kind of kept um, you kept you going you know, <laughs> you know what gets you out of bed every day you know I met a really good psychologist very early on mm. and through a, a friend um, who was a psychotherapist herself and she knew I was going to need support she knew and, and really what you're dealing with at that stage is PTSD, you know, that's, that's, it's, it's, um, and even in those early stages, it's not even the post-traumatic, it's, <laughs> it's, it's traumatic, it's, it's mm. stress, uh, grief, all of the emotions that go with that. And, uh, and I do believe that that's what kept me sane. I started seeing him probably about six weeks after losing the boys and, I think I saw him probably for three times a week, I think, to begin with. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you, you, you were asking about, you know, what supports I had. I was very, very aware that my, you know, my friends and my family were, were they were dealing with their own grief and loss, but they were also holding me, mine so they'd ha- they'd have their own to deal with and they held mine as well in in trying to take some of that burden away from me and then that's impossible it, it's just it can't be done but every conversation was around the boys and Sanj actually it, it was easier in those early days to to think about Sanj and to to work through issues around him and dealing with him because because th- talking you know talking about the boys or or Dealing with the fact that they were now dead was something I I tried to avoid for as long as I possibly could. I, I you know, I I've often talked about the fact that you know logically I knew they were gone. I accepted they were gone, they were dead, but accepting that they were never coming back again was very different. You know, so many people talk about oh God, I don't think I could do it, Kathleen. And I'm there. No, we all have the ability within us. I genuinely think we all have the ability within us to to go through all sorts of trauma um, and traumatic events. And um, it's just that you hope that very few people actually have to face it. Mm. That's you know um, that would be my my hope, I suppose. You mentioned just sorry in terms of Sanj and and your the considerations given to him at that point. Like in terms of your relationship with him, did you was there any no. talking after that day? No, no that and was there it. hasn't been since. There hasn't been since. Um, there, there's often moments, even even in the darkest of times, there's humorous moment moments. And and I remember on the Sunday, so the boys were buried on the Friday, and on the Sunday I got a phone call and I got a missed call. Um, from what I thought was a Cork number, but it turns out it was actually the Central Mental Hospital. So yeah. I called back and you get through to dial one for dial two for etc. And I dialed, I just hit a button and somebody answered the phone and um, I'm, I, I stuttered. I was on my own. It was the first time in a week that I had been on my own and I'm there going, 
because I, I, I'd rung the number first. It, it answered as the central mental hospital and I went, oh God, hung up. And then I rang back because I thought, well, what's, what's wrong? I knew at that stage that's where he was. And I phoned, I phoned up and um, whoever I was talking to, I'm stumbling over trying to explain who I was and that my husband had been admitted and that he had murdered our two children. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, and all I got was, uh, sorry, love, you're through to the maintenance department. <sighs> And you're there going, oh, okay. Oh, um, I'm really sorry. <laughs> now, I do look back in that moment with, hum- with, yeah. with, with humor. But um, at the time, I was in so- I was just beside myself. Anyway, I phoned the guards then. Um, the, the, they blessed them. They'd left me sort of contact details. And so I phoned them because I didn't know what was wrong. I didn't know whether he'd killed himself. Mm-hmm. You know, um, maybe a little part of me hoped that that was the case. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time and it turns out it was a doctor phoning to tell me that he'd been admitted to the central mental hospital but he put me down as his next of kin so um so fine I I, they were actually in the subsequent weeks then um I would have been in touch with the um social worker from from CMH who was very very good and um, they were so nice and so supportive, despite, you know, even though it was it was all about him, if you like, mm. from their perspective. Um, but they kept me, I suppose, um, I, I was part of the assessment process mm. um, for him, which it was important to me. I needed to be part of that. I needed them to have a different perspective, not just his. Mm. So I was happy to, to, to meet with, a, I met with the consultant, um, I met with a psychologist just to, to, to do a review and Sanja requested could he uh, could he write to me and at the time I said yes because I thought maybe it'll give me some insight into mm. what's going on mm. the letters he wrote were were quite bizarre um, they were almost love letters which was really strange because we weren't we weren't a particularly <laughs> romantic couple in mm-hmm. that way so mm-hmm. you know to have him quoting song lyrics to me was just the strangest thing at that stage and at that point and you know to have him tell me in the letter that he loved me and and you're there going how 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 can you possibly say you loved me or you love me and that you love Owen and Murray and do what you did and was there remorse in these letters no of any kind with the result by by letter number two or three I think I can't remember Three, I think it was. I think I got three from him in total. And I, I, I actually said no more. I, I, it, it, for, there was no, there was, there was nothing in it that was going to bring me any kind of comfort at all. Mm. And there was, was there remorse? I don't think there was. I think the closest I got to, to any sense of remorse in him was, the day of the trial as I walked I gave I I walked past him to give my victim impact statement and as I walked back he just said he was crying and he just said I'm so sorry that was the closest I got I think to remorse I I used to say in the earlier days I I think when he says I'm sorry it was I'm sorry that I'm not with that I didn't get to carry on through mm-hmm. and and kill myself, I, you know. I think that was what he was sorry about more than anything. 
there was no there were, yeah self pity I think was pretty evident in, along the way with with him. Am I right in saying that at some point you you found a, a something in an email and a, yeah. pre, a previous uh, suicide note, shall we say, where yeah. he, where he expressed that he was going to kill all, all of you. Us. In it, he basically, yeah, it was a suicide note, and um, he said, you know, uh, forget about me and what I've done, or something to that effect. Um, but raise a toast to Kathleen and and the boys; they didn't deserve this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, remember us all kindly, or something along those lines. Quite self-serving when you when when I really read it, you know, mm-hmm. in that way, it was it was just odd. Um, but he had written a number of letters after he'd killed the boys in the car that the guards um, would have come across. And, and in one of them, he invited me to join them. So he had intended that he would be, or in his mind, he was going to have killed himself mm-hmm. and the boys. Um, and that I could join them if I wished. Which was almost, I, I remember I didn't have access to any of those letters until um, after the trial. And I remember that being read out in court. Um, and he'd written a, a letter to Owen and Rory. So they were already dead. He'd written this letter. And even if he had gone, got, followed through and killed himself, writing a letter to, to them, who else was going to read it? Only me, mm. if you like. So he wrote this knowing it would be seen by others and, and by me and he'd written in it one line which was mummy is getting rid of me and I remember being and it's funny what you focus on but I remember on the day of the, the trial hearing that and getting so upset because I went I wasn't mm-hmm. but that was him blaming me mm-hmm. that was you know and, and and now through some of the I suppose the work that I do and, and that you, you see that the, the control, if you like, on that. Um, so uh, I suppose an element, of, of course, of control now that I can see. But even with that, those words, mummy's getting rid of me. That's why he had to do what he did. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another letter to, addressed to me. Again, you know, he loved me. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I could join them if I wished, which again is putting it back on me. Mm-hmm. That if I don't join them, did that mean I didn't love them enough? So he obviously had this was on his mind to do this for some time, mm. like he had that, his premeditation. Yeah. That but had been going on for well over a year, about a year and a half before. But for him to to have done it then it, the way he did, and to specifically not take your life, what do you think was his intention there? Was he trying to to torture you? Basically, I don't know. To mm. be honest, I did ask the question after. Um, there would have been a couple of, of his friends that did see him in Central Mental Hospital. Um, and bless them, they were so good because they asked me first, was that okay? Right. Um, and, and that was fine. I, I, you know, you're still trying to make sense of things at that stage. Mm-hmm. And so the, I, I actually got one of the guys to ask that specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was basically he knew that it was going to be a tougher thing to do if I was with him. So I would have fought. Mm. and that he might not have been able to carry through on it if I had been there with them. So he knew that the boys were, you know, they were five and ten. So physically, they were no match for him. Mm. And uh, so again, I, I go back to something I'd said earlier. He's 
gutless, you know, um, a, a coward in a way, if you, you know, um, and so self-serving. I question myself for a long time, still to a certain extent, you know, I question, mm. how did I not see it? Mm. Well, I didn't because he had the ability almost to box all of that in, in one little compartment in his mind and and only took it out when he was able to do so and when it was possible for him to do so because you know in your day-to-day life as I and again I've often said you know I slept next to him obviously every night we were a normal family a normal couple um and absolutely nothing nothing there he would have been quite a a passive guy in many ways he wasn't argumentative we didn't really we have disagreements but we didn't really have rows um i never saw him raise his hand to the boys or to me in any way um he was the peacemaker in in, in lots of ways you know um he wasn't aggressive at all so to to find that side of him um and and to, to you know uh, the, the suddenness of it and that's where my fear was that he might have put in an insanity plea and that it might even have been upheld that was my biggest fear um coming up to the trial um, do you just think that he that he had an evil streak in him obviously he yeah, was, he, there, was there was something there yeah. that I think quite a you know again you and and you do you start to put labels on things because Mm -hmm. you know again I'm from a medical black background I I like a diagnosis it makes it easier for me to understand Mm -hmm. things and so you you do and and you know I know now I look back on it and and I can see the traits of of you know there is personality disorder Mm -hmm. there has to be um but quite narcissistic very self-serving incredibly selfish and these are all things that might have had a bit of an inkling but but not really either you know um uh, because in fairness it's not something that you would ever think (laughs) no could happen to you or anybody or anybody and even because even the embezzlement felt so out of character um for him you know it just didn't didn't make sense yeah didn't so he had a secret you know kind he had of a secret life. a secret life and a secret side and and our lifestyle with me working in him at home i suppose allowed for that you know um now i i can't i i regret now that that he was a stay-at-home dad absolutely but at the time it was the right decision for us to make it made more sense i had a job that i loved it was a good job we could afford to live on one salary mm-hmm. um you know we'd spent a, a lot of years out in the middle east so we that's how we saved to to buy the first house that we had up in dublin we got very lucky we sold that at at the peak and then built on on you know my family land so we were in a position that we could afford to live on one salary you know, and he was involved in the community, in the school, and you know, played football locally. So, you know, he he would have had sort of uh, an outlet, if you like, outside the home. Um, but it allowed him to have this secret life. Mm-hmm. I never felt like 
I couldn't watch what he was doing on the computer. I never felt like he was hiding things from me in any way. Uh, so he, you know, uh, but now some of what I understand when it comes to gambling and a gambling addiction, it, you know, it is, it's one of the most, most difficult addictions, if you like, to, ma- uh, to, to manage. You know, if somebody is an alcoholic, it's obvious they're drunk, yeah. you know, um, with a gambler. And he wasn't, you know, it wasn't as though he was going into, um, in, into any of the, to Paddy Power on a regular basis or anything like that. So it, it was, was all from view. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just want to I, I want to briefly touch on the on the justice system. Yeah. I feel like we, 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 we should talk about it a bit. But, you know, I mentioned the Parole Act. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it had been the case up until recently that it was seven years, am I right? Seven years, yeah. So after seven years, everybody was entitled to parole. Yeah. And, and, and I know that you played a huge role in speaking out against that. And, and we now have a, a, a new... Act which means twelve years. Yes. Um. But so, but what 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 got you out campaigning in the first place? You know. So I I suppose there was there was a, a a number of us locally. Believe it or not, there as within about a ten kilometer radius, there's about um, it's about five four families five families affected by murder. Mm. Um. God. Uh, yeah. That's bad. <laughs> um. Uh, three women. Um, uh, in 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 three of the cases, three, yeah. So it's four families. Um, in in two two of them were um a previous partner. One wasn't the stranger, and uh, and then for me the boys. So we kind of I suppose through that we we kind of met. Um, uh, I knew one of the girls. She knew some of the others, and, and that's kind of how it came about. And I remember we we sat in the service station down in Paulstown one night, four of us, and just thought we we need to do something. I had just been interviewed by one of the girls, um, Angela, who's a journalist herself, um, on unrelated to to her own situation. Uh, it was just an event that was happening here in in Ballinkillen in memory of the boys. Mm. So that's how I I met Angela. She had been in touch with some of the others, and we ended up starting up a group called Save which is sentencing and victim equality. We met with um, some of the, the local um, public representatives um, here in the Carla Kilkenny area. Um, so there was Jennifer Marine O'Connor and, and John McGuinness. And, and they came down and they met with us, which was, was great. And through that is where um, sort of, I, I suppose I built up a relationship and a friendship with Jennifer. Um, she's now a TD. Um, she was a senator at the time. And through her, she introduced me to Jim O'Callaghan and the parole bill was something that he was putting forward and I remember meeting with him and talking it through with him and it made sense and and it's funny the headline is always about the the number of years mm. um so it's gone from seven years to 12 years mm. before anybody can apply for parole but there's a lot more to the new parole bill than that mm. um and one of the things for me is that it's it's um it is more victim-centric and families of victims. So it it now means that we are entitled to legal representation in the event that it's it's required coming up to the parole. Mm-hmm. So it means that I can actually so that'll be part of the um uh, through through um legal aid. And it means that if there's because there are sometimes issues things that go on because of the circumstances for me I'm le- I'm less affected going forward if you like it's it's almost like there's a little bubble around Sanj mm-hmm. whereas for a lot of families there's a lot more you know the perpetrator may have family in the area mm-hmm. 
you know, whenever they come out, are they going to come back to this area? Might they bump into them on the street? Might, you know, what is the impact, ongoing impact, if, say, you're making an objection to somebody being, being given parole, you know, and you're meeting their mother the mm. following week mm. um, or a family member or, you know, and, and, and you can find that the, the families of per- perpetrators can, can circle the wagons mm. um, and, and, you know, be very defensive. So, you know, so that that's where it's important, actually, because you're you're it's the first time that the victims actually have that legal representation and are that's entitled right. to it. Mm. Um, we can actually now f- um, have a, a direct face to face meeting with the parole board or members of the parole board. That's huge. The parole board, up until now, you could only make a written submission. They can see what we submit, but we can't see their submission. We can't, we're not entitled to know on what grounds they feel they're entitled to parole. But they can, and, and I've had one situation, well, I've only had one occasion to, to write to the parole board. Yeah. Um, but I know I came back, I put a photograph of Owen and Rory on it because I wanted any parole board, anybody, any member of the parole board, I wanted them to know Owen and Rory. Um, and I was told I had to take that off. Um, I know of cases where, you know, somebody, where the, the letter is sent back and they've got to tone it down, basically, because it's going to be read. I know of, of cases where families will be very careful about what they put in because it's read by the perpetrator who can then go back to their own family who might be in the same area mm-hmm. and told it. So you're you're censoring yourself. Mm-hmm. So that has changed. So it's very different when you're face-to-face and you're having a conversation mm-hmm. um, uh, in, in that way. So that's that's huge. And there has been provision made. I don't think there has been anybody elected to it yet, but there has been provision made to have a victim's rep- representative on the parole board. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that would be huge. I think it would send a really strong message that says, you know what, we're 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 listening to you now. Mm. We're we're. My own belief is, if we put the victim and the families of the victim center, then you will have a much more robust and fair justice system in this country. At the moment, it feels very much on the side of the perpetrator. And their um, rights. And, and their yeah. rights. I get it. On a logical, academic side, I get it. Mm. I know that they have to be sure. And what they're trying to do is be sure that, you know, every, every T is crossed and I is dotted. Mm. But in doing that and making sure the rights of the perpetrator um, have been fulfilled to the nth degree, you lose the victim in all of it. Mm. They're not part of the process. Mm. Uh, and I'm talking about with serious, serious crimes. Um, so murder or serious assaults. And when you don't put the victim to the front, when when those that are involved, be it on the, the prosecution or defence, when all they're seeing is the perpetrator, then you lose a huge part of the whole process. Mm. 12 years, of course, 12 years is not enough. No. I mean, I have another four years to go to, to 12 years or three and a half years, I suppose, at this stage. 12 years will come about very quickly. Mm-hmm. I am very confident that he will not be given parole at 12 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I know the average in this country now is it's about 19. 19, actually, yeah. yeah. 
But that basically means because we know that there are people in there for 25 to 30 years, that means there are people getting out at 15, 16 years as well. Um, we uh, doorstepped a fellow a few months ago, I think it was 13 years mm. for yeah. murder. Yeah. Murdered his wife, he was out in 13 years. I thought that yeah. was insane. But it was maybe because it wasn't a particularly notorious case. People yeah. don't necessarily remember it. Yeah. And yeah, I just was shocked by that. Yeah. But yeah. And that is, I mean, I, I remember somebody telling me, you know, not all murders are the same. And they're not. I, mm. I, I'll, I'll accept absolutely not yeah. all murders are the same. That's actually why we in SAVE would like to bring in either minimum tariffs or mm. where a judge can make that decision. Mm. So to, to add the words to serve a minimum of X number of years prior to parole, it seems very simple. And why can the judges not do that? But actually, our constitution doesn't allow for that. Mm. So you're, you're actually looking at a constitutional change to, to make that change. Mm. Um, I firmly believe that if we are trusting of our judges in the first place, and if they're trained properly mm-hmm. in the first place, then you can trust them to make that decision because they're making a decision at a time when all of the evidence is before them, when you don't have, you're not looking at rehabilitation because it's all about rehabilitation in this country. Now, I have met, I've met members of the, the parole board. I've met members of the Irish Prison Service. I've met guards. And I've had these discussions and, you know, and, and there's good people there. You know, I, I know when we were talking before today, I, I'd said, you know, there are good parts to the justice system. Mm-hmm. It's not all bad. And it's important that we recognize that. Um, and there are very good people there. They're somewhat stymied by the system, mm-hmm. if you like. Um, and so... I do think we've made a lot of progress in the last eight years. Mm. Um, even from when I was first um, sort of thrust into the, the whole um, system. And and I think there is a lot of change and there's a lot that has happened. And I think what we're seeing now is, is much more awareness of victims um, and the rights of the victim uh, and their families. Because sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm the voice of Owen and Rory. They don't have a voice themselves anymore. That was taken from them. They had a very, very strong sense of fairness and justice themselves, mm. even at five and ten. Um, so I do believe that that I'm carrying their fight, if you like, um, and, and that sense of fairness and justice that they would like to see. Um, so I, I think that's I think it is changing. It's very slow um, to make any major change like like the introduction of, of either minimum tariffs or the, a, a judge to make the, the decision on when parole would actually happen. Uh, you know, I think it's a long way down the line. Would, what would but you I s- think it's, it's, it's possible. Yeah. It what would you possible. say about a whole life sentence? Some people think that that should... And I do. I do believe that. I think there is. Because what that does is takes uh, the, the ambiguity away. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and if you want to be on the side, if you like, of, of the perpetrator and their rights, which, which there, there are people that, will, you know, mm. I'm not one of them, but there are. <laughs> yeah. um, I suppose, what what does it do to somebody who's sitting in prison um, and that applies for parole, be it at the seven years it was or the 12 years? Does it 
get set set them up with this full sense of of hope if you like that they might get out mm. um or as somebody described it is there an element of carrot and stick about it so part of the whole process of parole is actually there may be concessions so they might be allowed a day out to visit their family mm. or they might and again there may be good reason for some of that i i, I don't dismiss it all but that shouldn't come under the 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 whole guise of of parole if that's the case Mm -hmm. because that should be parole is about a perpetrator being released from prison early Mm -hmm. effectively Mm -hmm. i know they talk in this country about the fact that you know it it, they're still serving their sentence you know it is a life sentence i'm sorry if they're not behind bars they're not serving their sentence uh do i believe in whole life orders Absolutely. Do I believe that Sanjeev Chadha should be serving a whole life order? Very definitely. He should never see the light of day again. But I'm realistic enough to know that there is a high possibility that within the next 10 to 15 years, he will be out of prison or serving a sentence, be it in somewhere like an open prison or, or whatever that will be but he will have a freedom that my two sons will never have and what will it mean for for you i mean do you, i mean we know that he had he had the idea to take your mm-hmm. life i mean do you yeah. have fear that when he's out yeah that he'll come looking for you again it's there it's yeah. there it's it's always there again the logical part of me goes probably not you know he'll probably avoid me i hope Mm -hmm. that that's the case but it's there Mm -hmm. it's always there he you know we we use the (laughs) we use the words god i could kill him or Mm -hmm. kill her Mm -hmm. so you know just throw it out flippantly Mm -hmm. but my husband actually thought about killing me Mm. and that that I, I remember when I when I talked about that first and actually, you know, I was talking with the psychologist about it and I said, Am I overreacting? Am I and he said, No, because it's real and it is real. I hope and pray that day would never come. I'm very aware that every time I do an interview, every time I do something, you know, like this, we're talking today, will he hear that? Will that anger him on some level that will make him think you know when he gets out he wants to make me suffer more he can never ever do anything to me that will match what he's already done so even if he did try to hurt me physically or try to take my own life he can never ever hurt me again as he has done so um so that fear is there and and what I'll do I suppose is channel that in such a way that when we get to another three and a half years and he's applying for parole um, which I can only assume he will do given that he's already at the seven years he did apply um, now there's a small part of the legislation that was retrospective which is unusual in any new legislation actually which was was very clever of the the powers that be um uh, i'll give jim O'Callaghan the credit for that one mm. uh, because it actually does 
mean that if the case hadn't been heard before the new parole board uh, came into to being, then he automa- it automatically got pushed to the 12 years. Mm. So I am grateful, very grateful for that. But he did apply once, so I'm assuming he will apply again. Okay. Um, and, and that's fine at 12 years. I'm confident he won't be out. He, you know, he might be heard again, sort of, let's say, two, it's approximately every two years after that, mm. give or take. Mm. So what happens at 16 and 18 years? You know, what happens at 20 years? Mm. And the reality of that is that's only 10 to 12 years away. You know, he'll still be in his early 60s. And, you know, I, I have to live with the fact that he will likely be, again, there are those that would say he's not free, but he is. If he is not behind a locked gate, he's free. So yeah, there's there's a certain fear, and 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 I will be making that very known, and my feelings on that known, and the time comes, and you so know, it's a long way away. Hopefully, okay. um, I just I want to finish up on on just your memories of, and I'm sure you have many, but of of Owen and Rory, like you know, they're the lives that were lost yeah. at the end of the day, and yeah, I'm sure we're sitting here in this home. This is the home he's lived yeah. in, and yeah, um through many happy memories and and they are and and you know the the home there are happy memories here i've i've you know i've i've lived here i i work in dublin so i'm you know i do come and go mm. but um you know it, it was a happy home mm. it was a, and we were a happy family for a long time and um you know and i have to be careful not to forget that mm-hmm. um you know and it, it's it's okay even to include Sanj in some of that because he was a part of that, mm-hmm. you know. So it's almost like there's two parts, two two lives of, uh, if if you like, mm-hmm. um, and and there are times where I feel like I'm contradicting myself when I talk about that because how, how, but actually it was a happy home right up until those last moments for the boys, they were happy, well-adjusted, lovable, crazy um uh, kids, mm-hmm. they were very close. Um, considering that there was almost five years between them, four and a half plus years between them, and uh, but they were very very close. And Owen, Owen would have been the quieter and the shyer of the the two. Um, Rory was a typical second child. He had all the confidence because he knew he had his big brother there, you know, at his back all the time. And um, I mean, I. I've often joked he, he only got one year in school, but I remember the first day he went into junior infants and um, I mean, he basically just ran through the door. You know, I, I barely, barely got a wave and mm-hmm. um, you kind of hung around. And I remember him walking past and high fiving one of Owen's friends go as he walked in um, through the gate. And I thought, you'll be all right, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were, you know, and they were they were sports mad, the pair of them. And um, I mean, you know, I think we'd had the Olympics, was it the previous, that or that year actually? And um, uh, you know, you'd find Rory. He was only five, but you'd find him with the the teletext. I think was it, and you know, yeah. and and so he'd be able to put it. He worked. He knew how to to put on whatever channel that would show the um. Uh, whatever sport was going on, and I, I came down and watched him, or caught him watching table tennis. Um, you know, and and you're there. He literally anything. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, we, we would have joked about two flies going up a wall, and he'd have been, you know, watching. <laughs> but you know, he he yeah. did the, and the two of them, GAA mad. Um, Owen, 
hurling in particular. Um, he uh, he was he was very upset because he was born in Dublin and he lived in Carlow, which meant he couldn't play for Kilkenny. Um, uh, we used to tease him that you know Rory at least had been born in Kilkenny, so there was a chance, <laughs> but but that we weren't moving house to, to to let him. Rory wasn't quite sure whether it was football or, or hurling was was the the love of his life, but um. So the direction, for one of them at least, was sport. Was sport, anyway. sport. Yeah. I mean, yeah, GAA, soccer, cycling, uh, swimming. It, it, you name it. They they loved it and. Uh, and you do, you wonder now, you know, what would it have been like? What would they be like? They'd be 13 and 18 now. Um, Gosh. You know, uh, what What would lockdown have been mm. like with them? Um, you know, would we be all driving each other demented? Mm. Uh, Rory would be in secondary school now. You know, you'd been trying to supervise them. And and, and you, they're all the things that that, you know... That I, I go through, I, I suppose I, <laughs> I often do. I have an active imagination. So that's what that's what you do now. You, you, you imagine what life would be like. Mm. The good and the bad, you know, because I have no doubt that they would have driven me demented. Mm-hmm. Um, as I would have then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and that, but, you know, it's, it's, and it is really, really hard sometimes to, to accept that they're gone, mm. you know, um, I would never be without them, mm. or have, you know, I would never. Again, you get asked sometimes, you know, almost a God. Do you do you wish you'd never met Sanjay? And I'm like, well, no, because mm. to have not met Sanjay would have meant I wouldn't have had Owen and Rory in my life, and 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 they're still in my life, mm. you know. They're still I'm still their mum, and uh, so you know that that carries me a lot of the way now you mind me mention it uh, <laughs> tell me if you don't want it in the interview but you're you're moving home now yeah yeah and i mean this is this is the home you raised them and this is yeah. this is your family home is that going to be emotional for you to leave here it will be emotional um what what generally happens uh, with with any sort of big things in my life is I've already been thinking about them for quite some time mm-hmm. so by the time anybody else knows about it or or in this instance, the first sale sign went up. I've processed an awful lot of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I've gone through that. I know it's the right thing for me to do now. And and I've always said, this isn't about leaving them behind. This is about bringing Owen and Rory with me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and moving forward in my life. Um, but moving forward, they're there all the time. And it doesn't matter whether I'm in Ballankillen, in Dublin, or in Timbuktu. They're with me all the time. Um, and I don't, you know, there's there's so much of them in, in the in the area. And, and I'm from Ballankillen. I grew up in Ballankillen. So, you know, my mom is still here. My brothers are still here. My family is here. This is still my my home, if you like. So I'll still be coming, coming and going. Um, and uh, and, you know, it's it's this what is our family home I suppose I won't say was it is our family home but actually I need to do this for me now and and you do think about it and you you question is it the right thing to do is it not and what what does it mean but actually I I now need to I need to think about me um in in this as well so um I mean I know you're you're moving for work reasons but was it painful as well to be still living here after everything no no 
No, not at all, actually. I, I suppose I've, I've often said I was maybe in the early days, I was lucky that, the, you know, what happened happened so far away. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, I go over to, to Ballantubber quite regularly. Mm-hmm. I go over two or three times a year. I find a huge amount of comfort over there. Actually, the people in in Ballantubber put a, a beautiful plaque in memory of Owen and Rory in the grounds of the of the Abbey, mm-hmm. um, which is was incredible. And so for me, there's an awful lot of comfort over there. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't feel I, the the act itself was evil, but the boys are so full of goodness, mm-hmm. you know, that there there isn't a sense. I don't get a sense of of evil. I don't get a sense of of pain i've i've always felt very strongly that they're at peace mm-hmm. and and i have had that sense from very early on which does bring a comfort but as you say you're you're, you're moving from here because you've mm. got to do this for you yeah what do you mean by that sorry just in, in, in. <laughs> so for for me i i suppose i'm i'm 50 yeah. okay so i'm middle-aged um and I need to think in terms of of creating, and it's not a new life because I've still got the same job. I'm the same job for the last, you know, um, I'm with the same company for almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's actually about maybe forging another path with of of my life and and a new beginning of sorts. Mm -hmm. And and as I say that that I don't know what's ahead. I don't know whether it's the right or wrong move. I suppose ultimately it feels very much the right move. Mm-hmm. We built this house as a family home and my wish for it is that there will be another family in here. Um, it's just too big. Mm-hmm. That's really, you know, a, a big part of it. I've had an awful lot of comfort from this this house. I, um, you know, where we're sitting at the moment, just just over there is, is the, my spot on the on the sofa, if you like, and I've spent many, many, many hours sat there <laughs> yeah. watching the television and just letting time pass. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to joke that in the, in the early days, um, there was a, a, a Dr. Phil, you know, so I'd go through it. My, my goal every day was to get up mm-hmm. in those very early days. That was, all, that was all I needed to do in the day. If I got up um, and got out of bed and came downstairs, that was that was as much as I needed to do. I didn't ask any more of myself than that. So with the result, I, I spent a lot of time sitting watching television. And Dr. Phil was selling a book somewhere around eight years ago. Mm-hmm. So uh, every every episode related to a, a chapter in his book. But I used to joke with, with my family. We've got quite a dark sense of humor <laughs> sort of within the family. It helps, yeah, believe yeah. it or not. But um, I, I used to joke that... Um, the, what's the the guy that in England? Um, oh, there was Jeremy uh, Kyle. Jeremy Kyle. Yeah, he used to come on after either just before or just after, uh, Doctor Phil. And I always said if if anybody walked in and found me glued to Jeremy Kyle, things were really bad and they needed to intervene. Um, but uh, so you know that. But but there is a comfort in 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 here. But it's funny things shift. Mm-hmm. Again, I live with this every single day and have done for the the last eight and almost eight and a half years so i'm processing this i'm managing this all of the time for somebody on the outside that has a conversation with me like we've done this morning and we're just we're we're chatting 
you're hearing a lot of stuff maybe for the first time or you're you're hearing it from me certainly for the, the directly for the first time mm-hmm. it's very different than me who's lived it mm-hmm. you know and is continuing to live it so a, a lot of things like that that people on the outside can look at me doing or not doing or why I should be this or I should be that actually I've processed an awful lot of that mm-hmm. already so I've been thinking about selling for the last two two years and moving so it's something that hasn't crept up it's not a sudden decision it's crept up over time and and it's about maybe it's actually in, in as much as I have needed and and thrived on the support that I've gotten within the community it'll actually be quite nice to be a little bit anonymous for for a little while um and uh, and you know just come and go um and and you know there's there's an excitement in looking at houses at the moment i'm looking you know, to buy somewhere in dublin or you know so I'm, I'm, all of that there is a, a certain excitement in that as well and, and it's an, it's a new chapter um but it's a chapter that i bring Owen and Rory with me on so i think that's a lovely place to leave it okay thank you for talking to us Kathleen. really appreciate it not at all <laughs>